Welcome to the Fear and Greed Daily Interview. I'm Sean Aylmer. We've talked plenty about the extraordinary housing market with prices booming over the last 18 months. Great news if you own a property, but maybe not so good if you're trying to get into the market. Now, new research shows the surge in prices may have widened the gender wealth gap with women underrepresented in ownership of houses and investment properties. The report is from CoreLogic. It's released today to coincide with International Women's Day. Eliza Owen is CoreLogic Australia's Head of Research. Eliza, welcome to Fear and Greed. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the report, just how much have property prices boomed in the last year or so? Over the course of the pandemic, we've seen property prices up about 25%. And when we did the analysis for this report, they'd risen about 22.4% through to January. So a new cyclical high. And of course, that's far beyond what we've seen in wages, which have come up about 2.3%. Okay. So let's go through some of the findings from the report. What percentage of residential property in Australia is owned by women? Of the properties analysed by CoreLogic, we've seen about 26.6% are exclusively owned by women. So that means that we've identified the property has at least one owner that is a female, might have multiple female owners. Uh, and that compares to 29.9% of properties that are exclusively owned by men. Now, interestingly, the highest or most frequent kind of ownership that we identified was actually joint between males and females. So that was an ownership rate of 43.5% of properties analysed. So that means when you take into account, I guess, at least partial share that women would have in property, that comes out at about 70%. And it is, again, that little bit higher, about 73% for men. Okay. Is there a difference in whether they're owning luxury homes or whether they're owning units or investing, that type of thing? Yeah, good question. So this year we have done a little bit more analysis as to what kinds of properties are owned. So we know that an interesting dimension of the analysis we did this time around was houses versus units. And we found that that exclusive ownership of women in houses was about 24% but it was 28.5% for men across Australia. Now, that has important implications for potential wealth gaps as well because we know that houses tend to accumulate more value over time. We see that houses have had 10-year annualised growth of about 6% over the past decade compared to 4% in the unit segment. So women do have that relatively high level of ownership in the unit segment but they are underrepresented in houses. That kind of also reflects the areas that they own in as well. We see particularly high rates of ownership in, you know, the eastern suburbs of Sydney or or inner city areas of Sydney and Melbourne, where you tend to get more unit stock. And part of the overrepresentation of women in units as opposed to houses could come back to affordability as well. Okay. So if we just unpack that a little bit, the gender pay gap presumably plays a role in this. Whilst the differences between men and women, each percentage point would be, you know, I'm guessing here, but tens of thousands of homes. Mm-hmm. So in actual numbers, it's a big difference between the two. Yes. Yeah. Is it about the fact that there is a gender pay gap and women do get paid less than men? Is it about the fact that women have breaks from work for children or for whatever other reason more than men do? And mm-hmm. as a result, it's more difficult to save for a deposit. Why is it, do you think? 
Yeah, so I think it's a combination of factors. One element is that we are looking at the property market as a snapshot of ownership. So there's probably a bit of legacy in that where some of these purchases were made when it was more common for men to have more participation in the labor force and, you know, probably bought a property exclusively, whether they're in a partnership or not. But a lot of this, I think, does come back to differences in earnings, differences in conditioning in our attitudes towards property. Uh, One of the interesting findings we have from this report is that there's about 150,000 additional properties owned by men, and about 70% of those are actually investment properties. So this suggests that there may be some kind of higher engagement with men in that financialization side of things and a kind of empowerment to use housing as a, a kind of asset and investment vehicle. And then we come back to the pay parity issue where we know for average full-time ordinary earnings, the gender pay gap is sitting at about 13.5%. But we have to remember that when it comes to women's participation in the labor force, they don't represent a ton of the full-time workforce, whereas they do represent over 60% of the part-time workforce. So the actual total gender pay gap is probably much greater than that. That's going to, I guess, harm your ability to earn enough savings to build up a deposit because part-time work is compensated less than full-time work. So that's sort of a, a consideration as well. One thing I would say, though, is that housing, because of how expensive it is, we do find that a lot of it comes back to family wealth for first home buyers in particular. If they're getting access to the bank of mum and dad, for example, the bank of mum and dad is much less likely to discriminate in helping out their kids as to whether they're male or female or whatever gender they are. So in a weird way, I think the reliance on assistance getting into the property market takes a little away from gender parity in the housing market and puts a little more on wealth inequality. Stay with me, Eliza. We'll be back in a minute. My guest this morning is CoreLogic Australia's Head of Research, Eliza Owen. Okay, so whichever way you look at it, men are certainly not underrepresented in these categories. So as a result, women are, which has this wealth effect that you're talking about. And of course, that has massive flow on well sort of at at the beginning it comes down to things like childcare and all those sorts of things that prevent women from necessarily working as much as they might right through to retirement having enough money having a house to live in when you do retire I mean kind of the whole of life process in all this yeah that's a really good point so property residential real estate it's implicitly become more of a part of our retirement strategy, our long-term wealth strategy. We know that about 56% of Australian household wealth is held in this $9.8 trillion asset. So I think when you have a financial system that relies on home ownership to create comfort in retirement, stability of of household wealth, that's a problem when home ownership isn't created equal. So as a result, we need to look at policies that can help women, but also other intersections of that and, and other minorities into home ownership 
or you have to have some kind of safety net for people who are more vulnerable. Because as I mentioned, this is a snapshot of ownership that we've looked at. And for some women, maybe older women who are dissolving a relationship or have to leave their domestic situation, we need to cater for them as well. And the fact that they probably haven't got as much in their super as their partner, and they may not have the same access to ownership of of property at an older age as well. Some of the anecdotes coming out around that cohort of women are really saddening. Is it improving at all, Eliza, or have we stagnated on this? Yeah, so I think that some of the anecdotes that I've heard and, and statistics we've seen is that the women over 50 in Australia are the most rapidly growing cohort of people experiencing homelessness in this country. And I think that COVID has been quite disruptive to women and their relationship to work, as well as some of the things that we've heard coming out of the pandemic, like women in domestic abusive situations being coerced to take money out of their super for the household as well. So I think in that sense, the disruption of COVID has probably disproportionately affected women. But I think that at least we're talking about it more. We saw, for example, in the last federal budget, the introduction of the family home guarantee, which is a policy that would disproportionately help women because it is a policy targeting single parents and women make up most single parent households. And yeah, I think that is probably just the best starting point. In the data that we're seeing in this report as well, we note that women have had a a bit of an uptick in the purchase of property over time. So if we look at these property purchases as a snapshot by gender, looking back, women have gradually seen more participation. And I, as I say, I think a big part of this discrepancy in ownership is probably a legacy of a time where women did have lower participation in the workforce. So this time around, as we see new data come through and new purchases come through with women being more empowered, engaged in the workforce and financially literate, we'll probably continue to see that disparity narrow over time. Let's hope so. Now, I can't let you go, Eliza, without asking what you think will happen in the broader property market over the next 12 months. What's going to happen? Great question. I think that the biggest kind of immediate headwind for the property market is what we've seen in extreme flooding events across the East Coast. There's definitely going to be some disruption to the Brisbane property market in the short term. And for all those affected areas, a decline in demand amid low-lying areas and any properties directly affected. But ultimately, I would say in in the longer term and the broader picture, we're coming off the back of a very large upswing where interest rates are likely to start hiking anywhere between midway through this year and early next year. And I think that would put some downward pressure on demand. We've already seen an easing in growth rates and the first decline in the Sydney housing market through Feb since September 2020. So, you know, I think we're likely to see a continued easing in growth rates with the potential for a fall in prices. And hopefully that will provide an opportunity for those who have been waiting for those prices to come down a bit. Eliza, thank you for talking to Fear and Greed. Thanks for having me.
That was Eliza Owen, CoreLogic Australia's Head of Research. This is a Fear and Greed daily interview. Join me every morning for the full Fear and Greed podcast with all the business news you need to know. I'm Sean Aylmer. Enjoy your day.